everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a person who needs no introduction. We have the amazing RFM with us this morning. How are you, RFM? I'm fine. Thank you very much. How are you doing? We are great. We are so thrilled that you are on Mormonish this morning. We had a few little technical difficulties. We fought through them. And here we are. So thank you so much. Landon is so important. He gets two screen squares. Two screens. Yep. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Again, our viewers and listeners know that we are technically challenged. So we use all kinds of workarounds to get it to look like we want it to look. And Landon has to appear twice in order to run slides. So Landon is like has... Landon is like Wally Cox and Charlie Weaver. <laughs> <laughs> Rolled into one. That's exactly right. Hopefully our viewers understand what that means. I know <laughs> they I don't, don't just laugh. It's entertaining. <laughs> well, Landon is younger than I am. So it's a Hollywood Squares younger. joke. Oh, okay. It's a Hollywood a Squares. Hollywood yeah, squares. exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. You're probably too young for that too, Landon. But I used to watch that religiously. No, every, I, every day, I know so. Hollywood Squares. I just or I could have said you look like Landon is both Greg and Cindy. There we go. Now you're into my, <laughs> yep, I can start pointing. <laughs> ah, it's all about the game shows. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we have a really interesting topic to cover today and I'll give you a little bit of backstory on it. So there was a Mormon um, Mormonism Live episode last month, I think it was, where they talked about polygamy. And in the middle of the episode, RFM made this really interesting, like, aha moment observation that a lot of us just sort of went, wait, what? Has anyone ever talked about this before? This is so interesting. Uh, Lindsay Hansen Park jumped on it right away and said, this is fascinating. Landon and I were like, I don't think anybody's ever covered this before. Um, so then RFM uh, does his own podcast on this, which came out a couple of weeks ago. So I encourage everybody go over to RFM's site. I think it's also on Mormonism Live and uh, pull that up, listen to his podcast. That but one is on Radio I, Free Mormon. That is on Radio Free Mormon. Okay, that's right. You're all over the place. So that's much where I can't keep track. I went and did a bunch more research along the same lines and then presented my findings. Exactly. Kind of, kind of expanding on this little nugget of an idea that first appeared on Mormonism Live, then on the podcast. This thing so, is like a, a stone rolling down a hill. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah, this one's got hands. <laughs> this right. one has a hands and legs. That's it. So Landon and I listened to that podcast and we were like, this is so good. Like we thought we would love to see sort of a visual representation because this is kind of a textual analysis and comparison. And we thought for people out there that are more visual learners, like a lot of us, this needs to somehow be put out there so that we can compare and contrast and look and see what RFM is talking about. So he very uh, graciously allowed us to put some visuals together. He gave us his copious notes and materials, and we have put this presentation together um, that RFM now, I believe, is going to take on the road, right? A traveling show because this is so It amazing. could be because You're if it's this significant, I think word needs to get out. And that's why I came to Mormonish first. Yep, that's yep. Because we are known as the uh, program that can get the word out right away to every to a vast and wide viewership. So thank you. So I, I, I thought I thought it was more like we're a beta podcast. See if it, yeah. <laughs> see that actually it is what it is. Yeah. This is off, off, off Broadway. <laughs> this is so off Broadway. That's right. That we can do whatever we want, and he can work out it's like the, bugs the happy polygamous can... show. What was the name of that thing again? Where the everybody's singing wife. about how wonderful polygamy is. The principal wife. Yes, it's a new program. I have the, the showstopper in that that play, I think, was Up, Up with Polygamists. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> up, Up with Polygamy. That was, I think that might have been it. Uh, that yeah. actually might be Do you one get of the that songs. one, Landon? I don't know. 
No, no. <laughs> doesn't. No, see, I'm telling you, our family's going to be me and you, and Landon will just be nodding politely because there was much a smarmy younger, show so. back in the late 60s, early 70s, yep. which was kind of a reaction to all the hippie and anti war yep. movement. And it was very, I think, conservative and family friendly yep. and wholesome. And their main song was yep. Up, Up with People. Up, up with people. Yeah, was, There's people was Gene Rayburn also associated with that? I can't remember. Up, up with people. They're the best kind of folks, yep, you know. The best kind of folks, If you more know. people were for people than people everywhere, there'd be a wow. lot less people to worry about and a lot more people about. to care. Wow, I missed out. Uh, you missed out. That's why Arkham and I are so time, upbeat. But, uh, we were raised with it. <laughs> I was in the touring Thank company you. for a few months. Oh, were you really? Well, I was probably about nine years old, so no. No. <laughs> well, they did have kids on it. Oh, and I know you're very theatrical. So see, I'll believe virtually anything. I'm very gullible. So, okay. Anyway, so Landon, why don't you pull up the slides that we created for RFM? That's actually the reason he's on the show. We said it was kind of like a little twist your arm. We'll make your slide. You come on our show first. So he's like, what can it hurt? No one's watching. Right. So and by the way, fine. the translation of what uh, Rebecca said earlier is that she was gracious enough to take my research and make them into a slideshow and she even uh, put look at this by rfm copyright 2023 that's so nice that's of you. right there Gotta it is this is your show do, right <laughs> that's right so from this point on we are going to let rfm present his findings and we're just going to kind of talk about it because this is something neither landon and i and a lot of people had ever thought about before and it's i have to say brilliant well, it, it comes from simply an unfamiliarity with all of the documents and all of the arguments that are made in this context. I mean, huge books have been written about it. Podcasts have been made about it. And by what I mean, it is, is this idea that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy and that this was something that was made up by Brigham Young, that Brigham Young was practicing it with his other cohorts behind Joseph Smith's back in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith had nothing to do with it. He was trying to extirpate it. And then after he passes away violently in June of 1844, after that, Brigham Young and cohorts rewrite church history and forge a bunch of documents in order to make it look like Joseph Smith was actually practicing polygamy. So my familiarity with this subject, although not as in-depth as a lot of people, I know for years that section 132 is obviously a big problem for this theory because the traditional understanding, and I would say the historical understanding of section 132, which is of course the revelation that teaches and even commands polygamy. It basically says anybody who gets this info is thereby obligated to enter into this practice. And since you asked, here it is, Joseph, and now we're getting the ball rolling. And historically it was given on July 12th, 1843, and you'll find that in the italicized introduction of Section 132 in your Doctrine and Covenants. So if Section 132 was written in Joseph Smith's lifetime and not as the polygamy deniers claim, written after Joseph Smith's lifetime by Brigham Young or someone at his direction, and then Brigham Young lies and says, oh, this is from Joseph Smith, when actually Brigham Young created it like in 1852, when he first pulls it out of his desk drawer and makes these claims. If Joseph Smith actually wrote this revelation, and I'm going to back off from that a second, 
it's going to be a problem for the polygamy theorists. In fact, it's a fatal problem. It's a fatal flaw in their theory. But what I think I can do is prove absolutely that Section 132 did exist before Joseph Smith died. And that, I think, is a huge problem that I have yet to hear anyone even address so far. And maybe it just needs to get a little more circulation, and then they'll come up with some kind of response to it. But I'm not sure what kind of response <laughs> would actually answer this problem, which we're going to talk about today. So as we were preparing, Bill and I, for this show, where he had committed with one week's notice to give the evidence for Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. And I knew when he said that because a caller had called in, a caller named Matt at the end of one show and had brought this up about, well, Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy. And Bill committed right then and there and committed me to it as well, that on the next week's show, we would give the evidence for Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. Joseph, uh, Bill probably did 60 hours of research that week. And it's I didn't huge. do as so much. much. Yeah. Oh my gosh, How yeah. can you even tackle it in one week? And that's, and I didn't know if he knew what he was getting himself into, but he worked hard. I worked hard, but uh, he worked harder trying to familiarize ourselves with the subject matter. And the thing that I insisted on with Bill or encouraged him to do is to look only at the contemporary evidence that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy as opposed to these affidavits that are written decades later. And it's not out of a, a desire to not believe the women, but Contemporary evidence is always more compelling than statements made decades later, and which may have been made under duress. You know, they certainly have an an argument that uh, Brigham Young wanted these affidavits to use for a legal purpose in the Temple Lot trial. We don't have to get into that. In fact, I don't want to get into that. So I don't know, possibly, but it's much harder to argue against contemporary evidence. So that's what we limited our presentation to: was the contemporary evidence. Bill got into the land deeds in Nauvoo. And he has a very compelling argument to make based upon those, which he makes separately. What I had landed upon was the idea that we've got the Nauvoo Expositor published June 7th, 1844, which is before Joseph Smith's death. And in fact, is one of the things that probably led directly to Joseph Smith's death, or if not the Nauvoo Expositor being published led to it, it was Joseph Smith's reaction to it as the mayor of Nauvoo and having the city council declared a public nuisance and then sending the marshal out or the sheriff out to destroy the press. And it may be that the, the sheriff was just there to destroy all the newspapers and a mob came with him and destroyed the press itself, which is obviously much more extreme. But Joseph Smith, that's what he ended up being arrested for and taken to Nauvoo on charges of treason. Where he was ultimately yeah, Landon? He was taken to Carthage, not Nauvoo. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Carthage. Thank you. He was in Nauvoo. You're correct. After in he Nauvoo, left Nauvoo and then came Carthage. back to Nauvoo. That's right. <laughs> it was the end either way. Let's just say that. Right. And so I'm aware that um, the people who believe Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, which I see as a conspiracy theory, and I don't say that to try and put them down. I try and use it as a term of art because it actually does have a meaning. And I think this is what they're engaged in. One of the things that they do is when you have journal entries in handwriting, such as um, William Clayton, who was one of Joseph Smith's scribes, in fact, preeminently Joseph Smith's scribe, and had journals and diaries that are extremely fact-filled and contemporary. 
we have a entry for him for the date in question, July 12th, 1843, where he says, you know, he spent the morning writing down this revelation from Joseph Smith about how Abraham, Moses, et cetera, and David were justified in having more wives than one. And it was 10 pages long, which sounds a lot like Doctrine and Covenants section 132. But the response from the people who are against that idea the polygamy deniers, is to say, oh, well, that was just written in later. Because it's handwriting. So they have this practice of waving away contradictory evidence and even very contradictory evidence like William Clayton's journal entry as, oh, well, that was just written in later. Now, the significance of a newspaper is that you can't change it later. You can't go back to the Nauvoo Expositor and go writing in hand notes between the lines without it being obvious what you're doing. So a newspaper crystallizes what it is that's the contents of that newspaper on the date that it was published. And that's what we have here with the Nauvoo Expositor, June 7th, 1844. We know that everything that was written in this newspaper was published on that date and not after Joseph Smith's death. There was no tampering with it. A newspaper does not admit to tampering. And by I admit, I mean allow itself to be tampered with. And in the novel expositor, finally laboring toward the point, are three affidavits from individuals who claim that they either read and or heard read the revelation on plural marriage. Basically, what we would have today is Doctrine and Covenants, section 132 if the polygamy deniers are incorrect, okay? It would be section 132, which is the revelation on plural marriage. Obviously it wasn't section 132 until 1876, much later when it got added to the Doctrine and Covenants. So when I'm saying section 132, it's as shorthand for that revelation. So there are three affidavits contained in the June 7th, 1844. It's the only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor on account it, it got destroyed. There are three affidavits from individuals, once again, claiming to have read and or heard read the, the revelation on plural marriage. And when you take all three of these affidavits together, and I see you have them redlined here on the screen, that's all three of the affidavits. They're not that long. Mm -hmm. But when you look at them, they end up describing in every material respect the contents of section 132. So my position and my argument is that we can prove that section 132 or a document that was in all material respects identical to section 132 did in fact exist prior to Joseph Smith's death and in fact prior to June 7th of 1844. These Which I had people, never heard before. Well, had I mean, no one has heard this before. <laughs> Well, it seemed obvious to me. I'm sorry. And, 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 and I'm, I'm attributing this to my ignorance on the subject, right? So I'm not into all of these rabbit trails and all these explanations and all these redefinitions of words that the polygamy deniers go into. But right. I looked at this and I thought, well, if we've got three affidavits here in this newspaper, why don't we just look at them and see if they match Doctrine and Covenants section 132. And what happens so is that simple. not only does do these three affidavits taken together, and it's William Law, Jane Law, and Austin Cowles. Those are the three affiants. 
not only do they match Section 132 in every material respect, respect, they get nothing wrong. There is nothing that they describe as having seen or heard in this revelation that is not in Section 132. All it is is hit, 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 hit. Sometimes not only talking about the general principles, but even the exact language that we find in Section 132. Yeah. Which is so why it's that, a smoking gun. That's what I felt. It was absolutely a smoking gun right there. And that's why I felt there has to be visuals so we can see these. So that's what we're going to do next. But I think if you don't mind, RFM, is it okay if we read sort of um, the description of the people and yeah. why they would have, because to me, this was very interesting to kind of dig into them. So uh, maybe Landon can do that. But And I will say, so you'll see in the center of the slide, there's a picture of William Law. To the left, that's Austin Cowles. And then I could not find a picture of Jane Law, but I thought this was kind of funny. I used for my first time AI. I know Bill loves to generate pictures, right, with AI. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And I typed in... Um, Navu era woman angry at Joseph Smith. That is the instruction that I gave AI. <laughs> this is what popped up. So I think it might be an amalgam of all the women that were just out to get him. But I, I, to me now that is Jane Law. That really looks like someone that's just like, oh my gosh. So, so anyway, Landon, maybe you very quickly could just read the description of who are affiants, a new word that we learned as we prepared for this. Uh, Landon and I at least learned it. Of course, RFM knows it professionally. Um, why don't you read the descriptions and then we'll just dive right into all of these discoveries because this is just amazing to me. Sure. Yep, absolutely. William Law and his wife, Jane Law, joined the Church of Christ. Uh, that was the name of the church at the time <laughs> in 1836 <laughs> in Canada. It in was actually the Church of the Latter-day Saints then. Oh, oh, it would have been called that. Okay. Yeah, they changed it several times. I know that. So uh, 34 to 38, it was Church of the Latter-day Saints. Oh, okay. Perfect. Uh, well, they joined in 1836 uh, in Canada. And then in 1839, Law led a group of Canadian saints to Nauvoo, Illinois. And in 1841, Joseph Smith chose him to be a member of the First Presidency. So the this first guy is presidency. Like, yeah, Very this important. is like Oaks, right? This is, this is like high up. Yeah, right, right next to, to him. He was also a member of the Nauvoo City Council. Over time, Law became troubled by certain practices of Smith. He felt Smith was confusing church and state roles in Nauvoo by evading extradition uh, to be tried for crimes in Missouri. He also thought Smith used his church authority to sway political outcomes. However, it was Smith's covert practice of polygamy and his alleged advances towards Law, Law's wife, Jane, that caused Law to completely separate himself. Rumors circulated that Smith had made several proposals to Jane under the premise that she would enter a polyandrous marriage with Smith. Law and his wife confirmed these rumors were partly true. On April 18, 1844, First Presidency member William Law and his wife Jane were excommunicated from the church. In absentia, by the way. Which means they weren't there. <laughs> they weren't notified and they yeah. weren't there. Okay, It was a star chamber proceeding. So let's look at Austin Cowles then. Austin Cowles became a fervent believer in the church and was baptized in 1832 in New York. Uh, in February 1841, he was elected supervisor of streets in Nauvoo. Cowles became a member of the Nauvoo High Council on February 6, 1841. A month later, on March 30th, he was appointed counselor to Nauvoo State President William Marks. Can I stop there for just a sure. second, Landon? Yeah, he was the first counselor in the Nauvoo Stake Presidency. Now, nowadays, we don't think of that as being much compared to the first presidency. 
But at this time, the position of being the president of the Nauvoo stake was on a par with being, oh, pretty much anybody except for Joseph Smith, right? It's a very powerful position because it had not yet been cemented or organized in such a way as that the apostles are above the stakes, okay? Yeah. At this time, the apostles and the stakes are equal. The apostles simply have authority in places where there are no stakes organized. But the stake president has the authority where the stake is organized. Obviously, Joseph Smith is over all of it where it's organized and not organized. But that's why William Marks had a definite claim, which he did not pursue. But he had a definite claim to becoming the president of the church after Joseph Smith died. And Emma Smith encouraged William Marks to pursue that, but he chose not to. So when you're talking so about a first counselor in the Nauvoo stake, high <laughs> president, excuse me, when you're talking about a counselor in the Nauvoo stake presidency, that's a very high position. Okay. Uh, and this is really interesting about him. On December 1st, 1842, Cal's daughter, Elvira, had married Jonathan Holmes. Six months later, on June 1st, 1843, Elvira still married to Holmes, married Joseph Smith as a polyandrous plural wife. On September 12, 1843, Cowles resigned his seat in the High Council. Afterwards, Cowles was far more outspoken and energetic in his opposition to polygamy than almost any other man in Nauvoo. Afterwards, he was looked upon as a seceder. On May 18th, Cowles was excommunicated for apostasy. Right, and the other thing that is not in that timeline is between June 1st, 1843, where his daughter Elvira marries Joseph Smith as a polyandrous plural wife, and between there and September 12th, what happens is that on August 12th, 1843, Austin Cowles is present at a meeting of the Nauvoo High Council, which is where you'd expect him to be since he's the counselor in the presidency. In that meeting, Hiram Smith came to the meeting, talked about this revelation his brother had received, went back across the street to get a copy of it, brought it over to the high council and read the entire thing in the presence of the high council, including Austin Cowles. So at a minimum, and I think this is the basis of his knowledge for what it is he's going to testify in his affidavit that gets published in the Nauvoo Expositor as to the contents of this revelation on plural marriage. So William Law actually had a copy that he and Jane read. Is that correct? He he had a physical copy that he was able to read. Austin he testifies that he heard it read, and then a and then a copy was given to him so he could take it home, where he read it and his wife read it. And apparently, then he doesn't say what he did with it, but I'm guessing he returned it. All sense. right, there it is. Now we know a little more about the affiance and we've learned a new word. Let's go to our next slide. And now we're going to absolutely dive in and let Can I say one other thing us. about these people? Yes, please. In the Nauvoo Expositor, it makes it clear these people are not enemies of Joseph Smith. All right. They may be at this time, but they give the history and they make it very clear that all the people who are publishing this paper, including William Law and uh, the Higbees, et cetera, they believed joseph smith was a prophet they continue to believe even as the publication of this newspaper that the book of mormon is the word of god and was translated by joseph smith from gold plates and that it really 
represents a true revelation from God. It's real history about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, et cetera, what everybody else today in the church believes. They also believe that the revelations that Joseph Smith received up to 1835 in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, those are all from God too. It was only when Joseph Smith started teaching behind the scenes polygamy that they said, this is a bridge too far. This is not from God. The other stuff is up to this point, but this is not. And this is where we have to hold the line. And they talk about trying to talk with Joseph Smith and convince him of the error of his ways behind the scenes, try and get this taken care of without causing this huge storm of controversy, which they know they're causing by publishing this. And by the way, they're not in a different city or a different state. They're actually in the belly of the beast. They are publishing this about Joseph Smith while they live in Nauvoo, of which he is the mayor and the um, the, the commander, what is it, the lieutenant general, I think, of the Nauvoo yeah. Legion? Yeah, yeah. So they know they're taking chances by doing this. But this is where they finally came to after nothing else worked. And they felt, okay, we can't dissuade him. He's going to continue to do this. This is too much. And we're going to broadcast this to everybody else in the community, because up to this point, this was known with only a limited group of people, the Quorum of the Anointed. But like any conspiracy, right? Any secret, the more people you have involved in it, the more word's going to leak out. So there's rumors everywhere about Joseph Smith and this practice of polygamy. And Joseph Smith is going public in public discourse and denying it and trying to put the... the uh, the damper on all of these rumors so people will not believe that it's happening. All I'm saying is that these people love Joseph Smith. They revered him. They have positions of leadership in the church of Joseph Smith. They have sacrificed mightily for the cause that Joseph Smith espoused. They love him. It's just this one doctrine they're, that they're they have also an absolute beholden. problem with. Aren't they somewhat beholden to him as well? Um, it, you know, if William Law's on the on the uh, city council. Uh, Cal's was a supervisor of streets, so it sounds like you know they're getting their positions uh, somewhat through the influence of Joseph Smith. So they're certainly you know someone that Joseph Smith must have trusted that mm -hmm. he would put them in these positions or nominate them because I don't think you could be in any of these positions without Joseph Smith's approval. Almost certainly not, unless he didn't care about it. But I think he did care because William Law is in the first presidency, remember? Yeah. Austin Cowles is in the Nauvoo High Council presidency or the state presidency, as we would say. Okay, so we've got the William Law affidavit. All of these affidavits were sworn out on the 4th of May, 1844, and then subsequently published in the June 7th, 1844 Nauvoo Expositor. Did you want to read this? Uh, did Landon, did you already read? Can we get Re Rebecca to read this? Oh, no. I think William I can Law actually affidavit. read this one. <laughs> Everybody yeah, this knows that I can't. So. Yeah, this is a larger one. I think I can do it. Okay. Large print so version. Is, oh, my gosh. It's my running joke. It's my life. Okay. Um, William Law affidavit. He says, I hereby certify that Hiram Smith did in his office read to me a certain written document, which he said was a revelation from God. He said that he was with Joseph when it was received. He afterwards gave me the document to read, and I took it to my house and read it. 
it and showed it to my wife and returned it the next day. We had that question. Uh, the revelation, so-called, authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time in this world and in the world to come. It said this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law and also that he should administer to others. Several other items were in the revelation supporting the above doctrines. Okay, thank you. And yes, it does answer that question. You're right, that he returned it after they had read it, he and his wife. By the way, something I would ask, maybe in the future slide, because it's important that in the original William Law italicizes for emphasis the word law, and I think it's more than just because it's, it's also his last name. But he said this was the law. It said this was the law. Law is italicized in the original. And commanded Joseph to enter into this law. Once again, italicized in the original. So he's obviously emphasizing this word law. He mentions it twice and gives it italics for emphasis. Mm -hmm. We're, we'll talk about that here in a second. Yeah, for you sure. You want to go to the next slide? I think this is just an explanation that he read it, and I think we covered this. So Let's see. Comparison of William Law, Affidavit with Doctrine and Covenants 132. This is all that we're going to do. It's simplicity itself. To take the details in these three affidavits, compare it with section 132, and see whether there's matches. And there are, and there's lots of them. William Law purports to have read the written document containing a revelation from God, it says on the slide, and that he showed it to his wife, Jane. William Law says the revelation, so-called, that's his parenthetical insertion because he didn't believe it was a revelation, but that's what it was portrayed as and presented as. William Law says the revelation, so-called, authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time. That's the end of his quote. While this is certainly a broad description of section 132, it is not very particularized, all right? So the first thing to recognize is that, yes, that general description that he gives in that part of his affidavit does match a general description of section 132, but it gets much more particular and um, I think compelling than that. So more particularized is William Law stating that the revelation to have more wives than one in this world and the world to come. So it's in this world, it's in the world to come. This mirrors the language in a broad swath of 132, particularly verses 15 through 19, where the antithesis or the antitheses are presented of what will happen to those who do not enter into polygamy, followed by what will happen to those who do enter into polygamy. In other words, if you practice polygamy, then this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't, then this is what's going to happen to you. Okay, so therefore, section 132, verse 15, we're comparing what William Law said there. Therefore, if a man marry him a wife in the world, and he marry her not by me nor by my word, and he covenant with her so long as he is in the world, and she is with him, their covenant and marriage are not of, and she with him, their covenant and marriage are not a force when they are dead and when they are out of the world. Therefore, they are not bound by any law when they are out of the world. And we'll see this phrase a number of times. The antithesis is over there in verse 19, where it says, if you do, if a man does marry a wife by my word, which is my law, etc., then it shall be a full force when they are out of the world. And we find other references to this in the world or out of the world in verse 30 as well. So this mirrors the language of William Law stating that when he looked at this revelation, he recalled and swore an affidavit that said that the revelation to have more wives than one was, quote, in this world and the world 
to come, okay? So that's the point of that slide. Any questions or comments? That's that's quite a few. Uh, it, that's pretty obvious there that, that that that's not usually a term that you would just pull out of out of your hat. I don't know. Was that a common phrase in the early church, or is it, when you say this is particularized? It seems like yeah, he he definitely had read this and knew that that it was those words were in there a lot. Right, and once again, we're talking about a person who has seen and read a document which is of some length. And he's recalling what it is that was in it. So the fact that it does get repeated a number of times makes it easier to understand why it would be more impressed on his memory for recall later. So another thing he says, the affidavit of William Law said that this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law once again in italics. So William Law repeats the word law by the word law after William should probably be capitalized. William Law repeats the word law and emphasizes it in the original. The word law appears, I've got to move these little boxes with our faces in it <laughs> so I can read it. There we go. The word law appears throughout section 132 and is a major focus of emphasis as shown by the following examples. My count, this is my personal count. My count is that the word law appears at least 30 times throughout Doctrine and Covenants 132. I know it's at least 30. I might have missed some, but I think that's enough for government work. It is reasonable that this is why William Law remembered this so specifically, repeated it twice in his affidavit, that should be in instead of and, and emphasized the word law. Are you taking notes on this, Rebecca? I'm taking mental notes, yes. I'm, I'm uh -oh. writing it down. I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Just want to make sure. Because hopefully this will be better for Sunstone where I'll be presenting yeah, this Yeah, and well. I want to say very quickly that this is like a beta presentation because RFM is going to be doing this at Sunstone. So, And also, I believe, probably on Mormon Stories. So we're kind of going through the slides and we're making, you're seeing this in real time. We are creating this presentation and making sure it's going to be absolutely amazing because I hope all of you will attend. That'd be great. So it is reasonable that this is why William Law remembered this so specifically, repeated it twice in his affidavit, and emphasized the word law by putting it in italics, because it's all over the freaking place from beginning to end of DNC 132. This idea of this is the law. And the first time it appears is verse 3, where it says, prepare thy heart. This is for God to Joseph Smith is how it's presented. Therefore, prepare thy heart, Joseph, to receive and obey the instructions which I am about to give unto you, for all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. And then you go on in verse 5, abide the law, verse 6, the law, 7, the law. So 11, verse, verses 11, 12, 15, is that the bottom of that slide? Is it in right there yeah, uh, on that line at the bottom? Yeah, that's the last, yes. I think it does. Does it okay. go to the next slide? I can't Verse remember. 17, verse 18, <laughs> verse 19, we have the law or my law mentioned, God speaking. Uh, do we have the next slide on that? Or is that the only slide on this one? No. Oh, my gosh, look at it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> verse 21, 24, laws. 25, 27, <laughs> 28, 31. 32, yeah. enter ye into my law. 33, 34, uh, another one in 34, apparently. Wait a second, God commanded, because this was, that's a duplicate there. Oh, yeah. You see 34, 34 at the bottom and 34 at the top? Yep. Okay. Okay. So we'll 37, he abode in my law. All of this, 48, 54, 58, 59, 66. It's, it's from beginning to end of Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, this emphasis 
that this is the law and you have to obey the law. So I can understand why William Marks would use it twice in his affidavit and put it in italics because it's basically italicized in section 132 through its repeated, um, well, through its repetitions of over 30 times. I would consider that to be a way of emphasizing the same concept of the law, just as much as underlining or bold facing or italicizing. So what, what yeah, we're and seeing I agree. In, oh. uh, what we're seeing ahead, in William Law's affidavit is the same terms that he uses in the affidavit are repeated over and over and over again in section 132, which definitely gives credence to he has seen this and he's read it. Uh, yes. and, and he's not making this up. He's actually seen, there's no way Brigham Young could have made this up 20, 30 years later. Retrofitted it. Yeah, and retrofitted exactly. And it. I keep thinking from his point of view, like if I had seen this document or someone had read it to me, even hearing it read, it would be more impactful. La, 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 la. And someone said to me just in general, what was that about? I uh, talked about the law that you had to follow the law of polygamy and you could do it in this world. And if, that is what you would say. That is in mm -hmm. a nutshell, what would stick out to you if you had seen this? read it and heard it yeah and i think he took umbrage at the idea that this was the law i mean we're, we're in a strange yeah. church or he certainly was at the time we may be today as well where the word of wisdom is not given as a commandment or as a law but simply as you know general health advice but when it comes to polygamy that's the law you got to <laughs> do it this is the law this is what you choose to be the law it's kind of like that right nothing else is but it, this? it probably yeah. shows william law's thinking too though because because he said it's a so-called revelation or whatever the term was he used uh so-called uh that he really he kept hearing that it's the law but he didn't believe it was the law so that probably right. even stuck with him more that he's going he's calling this a law like that i have to obey this mm -hmm. and i have a problem with that i can't i can't believe this is a law that I have to have to live by. Right. So, uh, so far, it sounds like William Law actually saw a document that looks a lot like Section 132, and he's describing that in his affidavit. But there's more. Oh, oh I guess there, there is more. There, there even are, there's more. Even yeah. more, more it verses just keeps going. Yeah, there's more law. <laughs> so you get no it in uh, verse 64 two times, verse 65 two times. And verse 66, that's the last verse. There are 66 okay. verses in section 132. From beginning to end, you've got the law over and over again. Okay, now there's more. He also says in his affidavit, William Law does, that this uh, revelation he saw and read said that Joseph Smith should administer this to others. Not only was he commanded to enter into it, which we have there in verse 3, but he was also commanded that he should administer this plural marriage to others. And we find that as well in section 132. You got verse 44, then shall you have power. Once again, this is all from God to Joseph Smith. Then shall you have power by the power of my holy priesthood to take her and give her unto him that hath not committed adultery. All right. So that's if in the off chance that if she hath not committed adultery, right? but is innocent and hath not broken her vow, and she knows it, and I reveal it unto you, my servant Joseph. Then shall you have power by the power of my holy priesthood to take her and give her unto him that hath not committed adultery, but hath been faithful, for he shall be made ruler over many. Then you get to verse 46. Verily, verily, I say unto you that whatsoever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth in my name and by my word 
saith the Lord, it shall be eternally bound in the heavens, and whosoever sins you remit on earth shall be remitted eternally in the heavens, and whosoever sins you retain on earth shall be retained in heaven. Then finally, verse 48, it says, and again, verily I say unto you, my servant Joseph, that whatsoever you give on earth, and to whomsoever you give, anyone on earth, by my word and according to my law, it shall be visited with blessings and not cursings. So right there, and especially in verse 48, it's clear that 132 does give Joseph Smith the power and the injunction to administer this plural marriage to other people. So once again, William Law, right on the money. Right on the money. That's it. That, that's quite a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, and that's the thing. What a coincidence. I mean, how would that even be possible? Which is why I consider this a smoking gun right there. Well, thank you. I think it gets better because the, the collective witness, shades of Jacob Hansen, <laughs> the, the collective witness of all three of these people, they, they say some things that the others say, and we'll see this at the beginning of Jane Law's affidavit, but they also say things that other people didn't say. Different things about this revelation stick in their memory, and they write it down. And by the time we combine them all, we've got pretty much the whole revelation. So Jane Law, Rebecca, could you read this one as well? It's some big writing. Yes, I can. It's in huge writing. Thank you. And again, like I said, this is an AI-generated picture of disgruntled Jane because she is not happy. <laughs> and she says, I certify that I read the revelation referred to in the above affidavit of my husband. It sustained in strong terms the doctrine of more wives than one at a time in this world and in the next. And if you'll it stop there, if you'll stop there. That's the same language that her husband used. So that is overlap. And we're not going to go through the same uh, analysis that we did for that item that we already did with William. But now she has right. some new things. And I was going to say, when you see um, the highlighted areas in the slides, a lot of them do overlap because they do talk about the same thing. So there really is even more highlighting if you were to overlap or, or consider the overlap. So, okay. Um, in this world and in the next, it authorized some to have to the number of 10 and set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. And I have to say, this is where I... The idea that each one of the affiants pulled something out of it that, you know, like you said, stuck in them, their memory was important to them. Of course, of course, a woman would say, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's on me. You know, if I will not allow my husband to do this, I am under condemnation. Of course, this would be meaningful to her. And she would be upset about this and bring it up. Yes. So do we have Doctrine and Covenants section 132 for comparison? Yes, we do. Here we go. So it says here, Jane agrees with William. That she read the revelation and that it sustained in strongest terms the doctrine of more wise than one at a time in this world and in the next. And it authorized some to have to the number of 10. Well, this is explicitly set forth in DNC 132 verses 62 and 63, which says, And if he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery for they belong to him. And in verse 63, it says, But if one or either of the 10 virgins... After she is a spouse, she'll be with another man. She has committed adultery and shall be destroyed, etc. So she is absolutely right on point when she says that this revelation that she read authorized some men, some to have to the number of 10 wives. So that was a lucky guess with the number 10. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of lucky guesses coming in here. 
yes. a lot. So she's right on point about that. Any comments about that before we go to the next slide? Just why is it always virgins? Why? <laughs> well, and I don't think the ones he took were virgins. He, he, he no, they were. It's hard to find a virgin in, end, in Nauvoo. This, so. is, <laughs> this is what he's laying out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So Jane goes on to say the revelation, quote, set forth that those women who would not allow their husband to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. This is reflected in the law of Sarah, which comprises the last section of 132. So the last part of section 132, it's just section, you know, it, me it means section in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's like a title chapter. All I'm saying is that the last section of 132 is needlessly confusing. Probably should be the last part of section 132. Anyway, that was my mistake, by the way. 132, uh, verse 54, and I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph. By the way, all of these verses, 54, 64, and 65, these are all in that section, uh, that part of Doctrine and Covenants section 132 that the church really doesn't want the members to read. And that's why in the teacher's manual, it only goes up to verse 26 of Doctrine and Covenants 132 every every four years when it comes around in the church history section. And toward the end of the year, it says, go up to verse 26, and it's in the student's manual, at least it was the last time I taught, that you only go up through 26. And apparently nobody in my class ever asked, well, how come we don't read the entire revelation like we do with all the others? So anyway... There's a reason. Did you ever wonder that as a teacher? Did you ever wonder that? Because I'm sure you read all of it. Did you ever wonder as a teacher? I wonder why I'm not. By the time the by the time it. I was teaching, I was pretty able to figure out exactly why. Ah. So verse 44, 54, and I command my handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed saith the Lord, for I am the Lord thy God and will destroy her if she abide not my law. So what is made specific to Emma in verse 54 then becomes generalized to any other woman in her position. In verses 64 and 65, which says, and again, verily I say unto you, if any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, then shall she believe and administer unto him, or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God, for I will destroy her. And then finally, verse 65, it's talked about destroying and destruction of women who don't go along with this. But in verse 65, it, it calls them a transgressor. Therefore, it shall be lawful in me if she receive not the law for him to receive all things whatsoever I, the Lord is God, will give unto him because she did not believe and administer unto him according to my word. And administer unto him means go along with plural marriage. And she then becomes the transgressor. And he is exempt from the law of Sarah, who administered unto Abraham according to the law when I commanded Abraham to take Hagar to wife. So as you know, this is all the law of Sarah, which means that a woman in this position has the right to give an upvote or a downvote on any new wife her husband wants to marry polygamously. And if she gives the upvote, then he can marry her. And if she gives the downvote, then he can marry her. <laughs> and yes, you heard that correctly. <laughs> if she gives the downvote, he can still marry her, but now she's the transgressor and she's the one that the Lord is going to destroy. And I think this is very, very obviously 
what it is Jane is describing when she says, quote, set, that the revelation, quote, set forth that those women who would not allow their husband to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. Jane at least read the revelation all the way to the end, even if modern church members are not encouraged to do so. She, she must have missed Sunday school and had to do it herself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. And she saw the problems with it and she was incensed. I don't know what woman reading that would not be incensed. And what do you have any other thoughts about this, Rebecca? I know we've talked on the phone some. Uh, j just the idea that, like I said, she she pulled that out of it because that meant something to her as a woman. I mean, the idea that, like you said, yes, he can. No, he can't. Yes, he can. And then you're the one that's on the hook for it. I mean, it was a lose-lose proposition for women. And I'm sure that, that she and her husband both talked about this, especially if the rumors were true that she had been propositioned by Joseph. You know, she was already feeling in a very vulnerable situation there. Here comes this revelation. I mean, I think that she felt, I think anyone would feel, I, although it was very bold of her to go on record, she's going to think about how bold it was for a woman to put out an affidavit in, in that era. Very bold. I think she felt extremely strongly about it and she needed to warn others. And I think that was her motivation. Right. And I will go ahead and say, since we haven't seen Austin Cowles yet, and there are different details in each one. Hers, Jane Laws, is the only affidavit that contains this detail. So obviously it made an impression on her as a woman that maybe it yes. wasn't made as strongly on either of the other two men. It's interesting to watch this because what you have here is you have a husband and a wife who are sitting down and looking at this together for the first time and, and going through it. And you can see that, you know, he's going this is a law, this is a requirement that, I, and, and he's picking out all the parts that are, are kind of important to a man living this law. And she's looking at it like, what does this mean to me as a woman, uh, th this new revelation? And then, you know, in the end, they both said, this is ridiculous. We can't live by this, but it, it it's really interesting to see a couple reading through this for the first time who maybe wasn't aware of the law, or, you know, this is the first time they're becoming aware of this revelation you know, supposed revelation and just the reaction to it. It's, it's, it shows you the humanity right there mm -hmm. of how yeah. you would react to this. And I think modernizing this is always a good idea because in the past, it gets easy to be hypothetical and theoretical. But if you were to say that President Nelson today claimed to receive a revelation that's section 132, he doesn't actually have to receive it because it's already there. But let's just say, this is coming back, and I'm going to have a revelation on it. And he gives it to Dallin Oaks, his first counselor, to read. And Dallin Oaks cannot get past it. He cannot believe it. Shares it with his wife. She can't get past it. She can't believe it. They have behind-the-scenes meetings with President Nelson because, of course, they meet all the time. They see each other all the time. They have each other on speed dial. And they try and talk sense to him, but he will not be dissuaded from this. And finally, they feel like they have to go public. Now that is a display of ethics and integrity on the part of William and Jane Law, which I would not expect from Dallin Oaks, but I would be very impressed if he did. But based on his track record, I don't think so. He's totally a company man, regardless of what it is he has to support. But that's what would it would be like if it were happening today. Well, and I have this thought just right now. Um, he didn't have to show that to his wife. He's a man. He's in a very high position. He receives this uh, written copy of the revelation. 
it speaks to their relationship that he took it home and he said, oh my, oh my God, honey, look at this. What is this? You know, and they went over it together. He did mm -hmm. not have to do that. He could have just said, I got this and this is what we're going to do. But they worked through it together and they looked at it and they talked about it. And then they came to the conclusion of what had to be done. So to me, that speaks to their relationship in the day that she was perhaps seen as more of a partner with him than than other relationships that you hear about. It could be. From his perspective, I could also see this as uh, a tactic is the wrong word, yeah. but a way of moving forward with this a woman's in such a way as to make of... it very clear to his wife that he's not involved. Right. That he has nothing That's to do too. with it. So it's sort of like if you get, if you were to get some kind of, I don't know, a, a text message from somebody who is like enamored with you for no good oh. reason, or maybe a good reason, but it's not solicited. And, and you're like, honey, you're I got this. I just want to be upfront. I don't know what it is. Yes. I, I'm sorry. And I'm deleting it right now. I can yeah. see that too. Either yeah. way, they had a partnership where they were telling each other things and they were honest and upfront. So. I think that's a good point you make. But there's more. The Austin Cowles affidavit, once again. I can't read that. I'm just saying right up front. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we'll, have, we'll ask Landon to read that one. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. So here's yeah. that Austin Cowles, to all whom it may concern. And the first part of it is going to reference his basis of knowledge, which is from the August 12th, 1843 reading of the revelation by Hiram Smith at the Nauvoo High Council meeting. Okay, for as much as the public mind hath been much agitated by a course of procedure in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by a number of persons declaring against certain doctrines and practices therein, among who I am one, it is but meet that I should give my reasons, at least in part, as a cause that hath led me to declare myself. In the latter part of the summer, 1843, the patriarch, Hiram Smith, did in the High Council, of which I was a member, introduce what he said was a revelation given through the prophet, that the said Hiram Smith did say to read the said revelation in the said council, that according to his reading, there was contained the following doctrines. First, the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. Second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives, or marrying virgins, that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sinned not, save in the matter of Uriah. This revelation, with other evidence, that the aforementioned heresies uh, were taught and practiced in the church, determined me to leave the office of first counselor to the president of the church at Nauvoo, inasmuch as I dared not teach or administer such laws, and further uh, deponent saith not. Okay, so Austin gives us a bunch of other details, which we can check against 132. By the way, can I mention something about under his second item, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins that then there's quotation marks. David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sin not, save in the matter of Uriah. In the original, there is no closing quotation mark. There's only the opening quotation mark before David. And it would seem obvious from the revelation that the closing quotation mark should go after Uriah, period, in quotes, okay? Because then he goes into his own voice again, this revelation with other evidence that the aforesaid heresies were taught. The reason the quotation marks are important is because he is doing his best to actually remember and quote this part. 
which stuck out to him and which we will find the exact same language that he says he's quoting from this revelation. We find it in section 132. And again, it's interesting because we see a different perspective from the husband and wife. Mm -hmm. We see a high council member being instructed in a meeting. You know, first, this is the these are the two doctrines that they wanted us to walk away from this with. Right. And Austin Cowles, he takes extreme issue with the idea that uh, basically the second anointing, that a person can be sealed up to eternal life. And this is one of the other main components of section 132. And we find it in verse 19 and in verses 26 and 27. And it says, if a person, I'll just read it real quick. I think most people already know what I'm talking about. And again, verily I say unto you, verse 19, if a man marry a wife by my word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is if you do it the right way by the priesthood, right? Then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life that he shall commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood. And if he and if ye abide in my covenant and commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and through all eternity and shall be a full force when they are out of the world and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed upon their heads. So there's this idea of the sealing and that you are sealed up unto eternal life and nothing can shake that unless you do this thing called murder whereby you shed innocent blood. So in verse 26, it repeats the same idea. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man marry a wife according to my word, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, according to mine appointment, and he or, she, he or she shall commit any sin or transgression of the new and everlasting covenant, whatever, and all manner of blasphemies. And if they commit no murder, whereby they, wherein they shed innocent blood, yet they shall come forth in the first resurrection and enter into their exaltation. See, verse 26 is extremely pollucid in this regard. 19, you can get the sense of it. 26 comes out and hits you over the head with it. Yeah, this is being sealed up unto eternal life. So, and finally, verse 27 adds, the, pla the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which shall not be forgiven in the world nor out of the world, is in that ye commit murder, wherein ye shed innocent blood, and assent unto my death. So Austin Cowles is accurately describing not only these three verses, but this is a hugely important and separate principle that is set forth in 132, in addition to plural marriage. So he's remembering this. So he said, first, the seal, this is the first thing that was in there that he had trouble with. First, the sealing up of persons to eternal life. This is his words, Austin Cowles, against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. All right, so he's looking at something that is obviously contained in these verses, 19, 26, and 27. Wow, Any that, comments? That's, pre that's pretty damning. That, that, that is a specific doctrine. It's so specific. And, and I don't know if it was taught before this time or if this is the first time they're hearing it. Uh, I, if I read through this, I wouldn't immediately pick up, oh, I can, uh, you know, as long as I don't kill anyone, I could, and I do this ceiling, I'm, uh, you know, I, I get to go on to my exaltation. It must have been discussed pretty heavily in the meeting to where they all got the understanding of what these two doctrines were. So, yeah, this is this is pretty, pretty specific here. I think that what's going on here is that there is an association between entering into plural marriage, which happens only if you're in the quorum of the anointed, this super elite group, 
quorum of the anointed. And if you enter into it, then you're also being sealed up unto eternal life. That's part of the, um, well, the benefits, right? Yeah, the bargain. That's the big perk of entering into plural marriage is that you'll be sealed up unto eternal life. And we see that in Joseph Smith and how he presents it, say, to the Kimballs about their daughter and other people that if you enter into this, then you will be saved and your whole family will be saved through the fact that you're entering into plural marriage. So there's this connection between entering into plural marriage and being sealed up into eternal life, which is reflected here in section 132 in these verses. But once the church started defining celestial marriage as something other than plural marriage, let me go ahead and make this clear. Celestial marriage was plural marriage. That was the term that was used to describe plural marriage. And in the 1930s, I think it was J. Reuben Clark who came up with the idea of saying, let's change the definition of celestial marriage. It's not going to be plural marriage anymore. It's going to be eternal marriage between one man and one woman. And that's how we've grown up understanding it in the church. That's what celestial marriage is. It's eternal marriage between one man and one woman, which is not how it's always been. So once you understand that, I think it makes sense as to why it is that when people today read this, the natural understanding is, is that if you get married in the temple, then you are sealed up to eternal life. Which is why Bruce R. McConkie had to include that very thing as one of his seven deadly heresies. Because the idea that getting married in the temple seals you up into eternal life had achieved such prevalence among the Latter-day Saints that he felt compelled to add it to one of his heresies and denounce it as not true. But I think this is where the, the misunderstanding arises. This also tells me why, uh, you know, I, I keep saying, why would so many women have agreed to do this uh, at the time? But now that you look at it from this standpoint, that you're part of this elite group, and in order to remain in this elite group, you do this special thing that God has given to just this special group, and you're going to be sealed up, and you're, you, you know, you'll be, uh, your exaltation will be guaranteed. Uh, it, there's more than just, oh, Joseph was a handsome man. There's this this eliteness. I don't think that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you and your family, exactly. Yeah. They hold that over your head. It's a carrot dangled in front of you, your exaltation, your soul. Right. And the other the other side of it is not the carrot, it's a stick. And if you don't do this, then the gates of heaven will be forever closed against you. So yeah, you've got both things going. But you know, the, the question gets bandied about, even today, if President Nelson were to come out and say he had to practice plural marriage again, would you do it? And some people would, and some people wouldn't. And it was probably the same back in Nauvoo. Yeah, absolutely. Next uh, next slide. Okay. So second, once again, from Austin Cowell's affidavit, we've gone over the first thing that he pointed out. The second thing he pointed out was second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins. We'll get back to the virgins here in a second. But he says that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sin not save in the matter of Uriah, period. And I think that's the end of the quote. Look at section 132, verses 38 and 39, where he actually ends up quoting from section 132. 38, David also received many wives and concubines and also Solomon. It goes on, but let's go to verse 39. David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan, my servant. That was the prophet in David's court. Nathan, my servant, and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power. And in none of these things 
did he sin against me, save in the case of Uriah and his wife? Boom. Yeah, there's no doubt. <laughs> He's seen this. Right. And why would that concept even exist unless it's to make way for plural marriage to be okay? In other words, David has all these wives. He sins in none of them, except when in the case of Uriah and the Hittite, uh, Uriah the Hittite. I'm not exactly sure why that was considered to be wrong, but that's what it says here in section 132. It's a specific detail that Austin Cowles remembers and puts in his affidavit. So yeah, we've even got that, even the specific language reflected in these affidavits. And then there's another part of this same thing that I think is in the next slide where he talks about marrying virgins because nobody has mentioned virgins before in their affidavits. Jane Law says marrying up to 10 wives, but she doesn't specify that they're virgins. The idea of virgins or the word virgin appears only in Austin Cowell's affidavit. And yet we find that also reflected in section 132. Once again, these are the last few verses in section 132, but it's specifically about virgins, right? And that's one thing that people have wondered. How is it that section 132 talks about virgins when Joseph Smith was marrying other people's wives as well? Obviously not virgins. Regardless of that question, the fact is, is that 132 does speak in terms of virgins, which is what Austin Cowles remembers and puts in his affidavit. So in 132, we've already read some of these. And again, it's pertaining to the law of the priesthood. If any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another and the first give her consent, and if he espouse the second and they are virgins and have vowed to no other man, then is he justified. Verse 62, and if he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law in verse 63, but if one or either of the 10 virgins after she is espoused shall be with another man, then it's bad news for her. So it specifically contemplates a man marrying virgins and nobody else, no other kind of woman in section 132. And this is also reflected in Austin Cowell's affidavits where he talks about the doctrine of plurality of wives or marrying virgins. So with the or in that sentence, he equates the plurality of wives with marrying virgins. And that's exactly what section 132 does. Any comments? I'm I'm speechless almost at this point. Yeah, that's uh... to me. Cal's is really the uh, one that's so specific that it's it's hard to believe that he right. would not have seen this. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's damning. <laughs> is there another slide now, or is are we at the end? No, we've we'll, got. We'll go forward and see. The, we have the amalgam. Okay. Okay. Right. And, and as I said, enough. some of these are over, you know, they 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 cross over. So so some of the highlights would be highlighted by more than one affiant. But right. Well, and we um, have, let's see, Rebecca Williams had this great yellow. idea or we had it together, which is to take all of these different places and all these different verses where we have seen the correlations between the three affidavits and then highlight the three people who made the affidavits, William Law, Jane, and William Law's yellow, and I don't mean that as a, a negative. <laughs> he is his his affidavit, and the connections are highlighted in yellow, Jane Law in green, Austin Cowles in blue. And when you look at this with 
six pages that contain the entirety of the 66 verses. I'm looking down there. I think it's 66 verses of section 132. You can see that throughout the entirety of those six pages, there are connections, connections, connections to the affidavits. So what I am proposing and what my argument is, is that these three affiants in the Nauvoo Expositor from June 7th, 1844, describe a document that in all material respects is reflected in section 132. And they describe nothing that is not in section 132, which leads me to the conclusion that what they saw and what they're describing was in all material respects what we have today in section 132. What do you think? I don't think there's any doubt. And I think, again, to reiterate, we need to make it clear that there are some people that say section 132 did not exist in Joseph's lifetime. That's the whole argument here. It was created later. And this, to me, blows that out of the water. There was a section 132. It was viewed and heard by these affiants who were able to talk about it. There's no other explanation for their very clear, very precise um, affidavits. Yeah, they get all the principles right. There's nothing that they miss that's of any significance mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. section 132, at least according to my reading. And in some cases, they get the actual wording almost verbatim correct yeah. in their affidavits. I, I, I want to point out that uh, the, the, this thought that 132 was, was not written prior to Joseph's death, that, that's this group that's going out saying that Joseph didn't, didn't uh, these polygamy deniers. The church itself says this was written in Joseph's time, yeah. uh, or you know, the Brighamite church, if you want to call it that. Yes. Um, I think most historians agree that this was written beforehand. I think we were at the church history museum a couple of weeks ago, and mm -hmm. there was actually a handwritten copy of this written by mm -hmm. uh, one of the scribes that was on display at the church history museum. So it had clearly been written, uh, you know, by somebody before it was 132 and it was on display. So uh, to, to say you, you're not only saying that, that, uh, you're not only ignoring all of this evidence that you're bringing forth, but you're you're basically having to say that that everyone else is lying and that none of the historical uh, back you know the historical background for this is is all uh, bunk and and that's that's a pretty far stretch uh, by any imagination. You have to ignore basically all the evidence. Well, they they do have some evidence on it. their side, such as Joseph Smith denying he practiced polygamy. Because if he said it, I'm sure he didn't do it got to be right <laughs> oh my gosh it's definitely an effort to clean up joseph smith's image because the people who are doing yes. this believe that polygamy is an abomination like it says in yes. the book of mormon and they believe that joseph smith would not practice an abomination or he would not be a prophet therefore for him to be a prophet he could not have practiced polygamy and that is the lens through which all evidence is sifted now, the significance of this is when you've got stuff in handwriting, they will wave their hands at it and just say, oh, that was added later, that was done later, as if that answers everything. That particular argument is circumvented by this presentation because we're talking about affidavits that are not handwritten. Otherwise, they would just be waving their hands at those. 
but they were published in a newspaper and we know the date it was published, which was before Joseph Smith's death. And if we can, as I think we have effectively done, shown that these three witnesses did see a document and describe a document that is in all material respects the same as Doctrine and Covenants section 132, then we can conclude that a document that was in all material respects identical to 132 did exist before Joseph Smith's death. And it's important to note that once this came out, he ordered it destroyed. (laughs) Like he wanted to get out. Exactly. Yep, they wanted to burn all of those issues. All, yeah. Every single one. I think they were they were planning on having a thousand in their first printing. So I don't know if they got to all those or what, but um, yeah, that was dealt with quite quickly. And as you say, if Joseph Smith is an innocent party, why is he sending the sheriff out to destroy this? Yeah, it all points to that conclusion. That's right. So I think we have maybe one or two more slides that uh, Mormonish added, and oh, then yay. we'll go to our final. Con- yes, of course, it's not a Mormonish episode unless we have a Trexmo, which is uh, Star Trek memes through the lens of Mormonism. Landon, can you read some of our favorite polygamy ones here? Sure. Yeah. the The first one there says, "Yeah, I know your dad. We're on the Nauvoo High Council together. E- evidently, a requirement for the <laughs> for the polygamy." Oh, uh, the these are one- so bad. Oh, that's a good one. It is a good one. Was that one? Was that Mud's women? Is that the, uh, the yes? It's the Mud's gal women. Who spoke with I knew you would. Yep. Yeah, got let's see really now well if you off. can. Yes, yes. Let's name see if that you can name episode. The episode. That's right. He got <laughs> one out of three. He got Mud's women. Okay, next. <laughs> so, so, how long did you say they've been in the barn together? Exactly. Yeah, where it all started, right? They're out there looking at the barn. So, and this, I can, I can guess that you could guess two different episodes for this one. Is that Shadow with a Gun? Spectre of the Spectre gun. The gun. Yeah, it's either I that. Say shadow. Or it's it's the annihilation factor. I actually don't oh. know which one. You remember the one where they get yeah. So it could be one or the other. I'm not sure. So even but I don't I, know. I'm going to guess it's Spectre of the Gun then. I think it is Spectre of the Gun because that was the Western. Although the sky doesn't look red enough. Now our viewers are oh. like, oh my gosh, what is happening? <laughs> you've lost me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've lost me. The geekiness is coming out. And my personal favorite that we just made, I think yesterday or the day before. The next one, the last one, and this one says, before each of you men leave on your missions, I want you to draw me a map to your house and leave me a picture of your wife. <laughs> I think that's very funny. So, that one makes me laugh. That that makes my, my me myself laugh. So did you think about right. making anything regarding the the contusion on Chekhov's right cheek? Yeah, you know, this was what now I don't know what episode this was. They were all fighting. I'm thinking it was Day of the Dove, perhaps. Or could be naked time. I don't know. Anyway, when were they were all fighting? So it might have, have been. By out. the way, can we go to the, the slide before this? Uh-huh. Because the one on the left with that nice lavender purplish background. Yes. Reminds me of Jacob Hansen. <laughs> I swear, he, he is always <laughs> podcasting from sickbay. From, a, from sick bay. That's right. Oh, maybe I'll make a meme about that. Yeah. In fact, I did make a meme about uh, the Jim Bennett, Jacob Hansen debate. So maybe we'll have to put that in there sometime. Mm, so, oh that'd be God, great. That's crazy. Well, anyway, I like okay. that one on the right because it makes, it, you know, basically if Joseph Smith didn't issue section 132 and didn't uh, have uh, polygamy as a, as a law, uh, wouldn't he have been guilty of adultery? Uh, then this was just adultery. Yeah. In between with the Fanny Alger thing, he either was married to her or, 
you know, of course, yeah. you can make the argument, oh, nothing ever happened with the two, but there's a there's a pretty strong case there's there. There's some pretty well. compelling evidence there too. Yeah, and I don't know what polygamy deniers think about the whole Fanny Alger. I think maybe they just think that was a mistake. I don't know. We'll have to find out more about that. Okay, let's go to our final one. I think we have the very last one. There it is. And I think we already kind of had our conclusion, unless you have any other words to say, RFM. This is going to be a presentation, like I said, given going forward, you guys saw kind of the beta run through where we, you know, talked about some slides and making some changes, but I hope that you all got the gist of it. Any final thoughts or words, RFM? No, that's it. I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show and share this with you and your audience. And I want to give a special thanks to Rebecca for putting all these slides together and to thank her for making the corrections in the slides that I have enumerated throughout this podcast. Yes, we are going to be going over these again because we want this to be absolutely perfect for Sunstone and, and going forward in Mormon Stories or wherever else you're doing it. So, well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, please, please comment. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you've even heard of this kind of concept, that there was no polygamy practiced by Joseph. It's kind of a growing concept. It's getting some legs out there, which is why we feel it's really important to address it. So please um, comment, tell us what you think, like, and subscribe. And if you'd like to receive notifications when new episodes of Mormonish come out, go ahead and hit that notification bell. Also, we, uh, as I always say, finally figured out how to accept monetary donations to the channel. I know some of you have been asking and we appreciate our viewers so much. If you'd like to, we have links to PayPal and Venmo in the show notes and we will say goodbye for now from Mormonish. Thank you, RFM. Thank you, Landon. Thank you, viewers. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.